Well, good morning, Cornerstone. <clears throat> and thank you all for being here today. Apologies for my voice. It's actually God's providence that I can speak at all right now since I did not have a voice on Wednesday. It's a pleasure to open God's Word with you all today, and I look forward to sharing with you some of the truths that the Lord has been showing me in First Peter. To begin with, I'd like to pray, and then we can get started. Lord, we thank you for this time together and the opportunity to open your word and praise you together. Please bless this time and help our hearts and minds to be open to the words you have for us today. Thank you, God, for each person here today and that our gathering together in your name testifies to the truths that are shown in the passage that we will read together this morning. The truth that you have made for yourself a people set apart and holy, who are being prepared for the ultimate redemption that you are working out through your Son, Jesus. Bless us now as we open your word, and may you be glorified in our doing so. To you be all praise and honor and glory. Amen. If you've spent much time in 1 Peter, you will immediately recognize that the book is written to the Gentile church instead of a Jewish audience, as much of the Bible is. And because of this, it is special for our congregation, since by extrapolation, it is written to us. It is an incredible book, and I encourage you to read it and study it as a manual for living as God's people in a fallen world. The book was written as an encouragement to Christians who face difficulties and persecutions common to those of the faith in a hostile world. And it calls us to persevere and consider what the Lord has done for us, the promises that we have in him, what he calls us to, and also how to live that calling out well on earth. Chapter four, where we will be spending most of our time uh, this morning in contrasts the faithful and their calling with the lawless and their debauchery. It highlights the coming judgment for the latter and how to practice the calling for the former, which is to the glory and in the strength of the Lord. It culminates chapter uh, four, the passage that we'll be looking at today, with a reminder of the reason for Christ's earthly trials which is proving for Christians' earthly trials, which is proving one's faith and the treasure that we get by joining in Christ's suffering through these trials. Today we'll do a brief overview of the book of First Peter and then dive into chapters 4, verses uh, 1 and through 5, 7. And we'll be looking to answer these two questions that make up our outline. First, through the brief overview, where does this book fit into the biblical story? And then through a deep dive, which is really a shallow dive since this passage requires more than a single Sunday to uh, deep dive into, we'll answer, how should we live in light of the gospel, especially in uncertain times? So let's begin with a brief overview of uh, some context for First Peter. First, who is the recipient? It says in verse 1-1 one, one, that it's the exiles uh, of the dispersion, which is Christians spread out throughout the world. 
And it goes on to put them in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what's important about this is that it's modern-day Turkey. This is a diverse group of people who were ruled by the Romans and uh, heavily influenced by the Greco-Roman culture. Those centuries removed, we share a lot of characteristics with this intended audience as a group of diverse, non-Jewish people whose culture is built on the foundation that the Greek and Roman cultures laid. The next question is, where was this book written from? And it says later in the book that it's written from Rome uh, by referencing Babylon. And it was written later in Peter's life in AD 62 through 63. And as we'll see by looking at the outline of this book next, in this message, Peter wonderfully and skillfully inserts the Gentile Christians, and by extension us, <clears throat> into the biblical story and shows them that through the work that Jesus did on their behalf by dying on the cross and their faith in that work, that they have been adopted into the Lord's family. No longer outsiders to the vibrant story that God has been working out through the Jewish people for centuries. Uh, you may be familiar with the Bible Project group. Um, they have a great eight-minute video on the, that outlines the major themes of this book, and I encourage you to watch it. We'll actually link to it in the announcements email that goes out today. The following outline's been borrowed from them. And you can see, uh, first we start out with the greeting in the first part of chapter one. And as many of the New Testament books, this epistle uses the intro to identify who it is written to, but also testifies to something about the people. Here you will see that the book begins to use Old Testament ideas to reference the Gentile audience, such as exiles, elect, or chosen. And this serves to lay groundwork for a wonderful thrust of the book uh, for the rest of chapter one and into chapter two. Peter breaks away uh, after the greeting into a song of praise, which applies the work of Jesus on the cross to the Gentile Christians and sings about wonderful truths, about future certain hope that they have contrasted with the present suffering and an explanation of why these sufferings occur and how they're meant to prove one's faith. The next section goes through, uh, in the next section, Peter masterfully weaves the lives of the Gentile Christians into the biblical story that God has been working through all history. Peter testifies that throughout the ages, the faithful have been inquiring after God's plan and helps the Gentile Christians see themselves as part of that plan and as a cohesive family under the headship of Christ. And it invites them to live as the holy people that they are. Going on in the book, uh, it helps this newly formed holy nation understand how they should live toward their unbelieving contemporaries and what they should expect to endure because of their faith 
how to respond to the inevitable persecutions that they will experience as followers of the suffering servant, and also shows how responding with love to persecution will possibly bring about redemption in the lives of their persecutor, and will certainly result in their being praised by our Lord. The last two sections, chapter four goes on to further highlight how this new family should live and the re rich rewards that they will receive in the future. And it'll be theirs when our Savior is revealed at the summing up of all things. It highlights the confidence that we can have in our Lord and that the evil we face is not unique, but experienced by all our brothers and sisters throughout the ages as they join in resisting the evil work of our adversary, the devil. The book closes finally with an encouragement in perseverance and a message of greeting from their faraway brothers and sisters. So final question, why was this book written? It was written for the encouragement of Christians who face difficulties <clears throat> and persecutions common to those of the faith in a hostile world. It encourages them to persevere and consider what the Lord has done for them, the promises that they have in him, what he calls them to, and how to live out that calling well on earth. Sounds like a good book to be acquainted with, doesn't it? So where does this book fit into the biblical story to answer the question from the outline? It fits in where we find ourselves. After Christ has risen and ascended, but before he comes back to redeem all things. That is, in the final days, the place where Revelations leaves off in chapter 22, 16 through 21. That is, with the Lord at the door, ready to come in at any moment. And that leaves us with one remaining question. As we wait for that door to open and him to come in, how should we live life? here and now. And that is what the book of 1 Peter answers, and especially in chapter 4, 1 through 5, 7, which is where we'll be camping out for the rest of our time together. <clears throat> so our outline for this section that we'll be diving into is shown on the screen. And as we move through this, we will see these themes. Our suffering contrasted with the coming judgment the first part of chapter 4, 1 through 6, our charges and the charge in light of the coming judgment, 7 through 11. And then if you live this way, what, uh, here's what to expect in 12 through 19. Then a charge to elders, first part of 5, 1 through 4, and a charge to young and all in 5 through 7. So let's dive in. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery 
and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There's a secret here in the first couple verses of chapter four, a secret to living a life that is truly and genuinely free and at peace. How much energy and resources have been given, have you given, to kicking against the world and where we find ourselves in it, since our expectations that we will get our own way is unrealized? Peter here is offering us a very different understanding of our place in the world and how we should relate to it. He shows us <clears throat> that we are viewing it completely upside down. We naturally, or perhaps unnaturally, because of sin, believe that our greatest joy will come from having what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. But that is not what Peter is offering here as a way of understanding true freedom. Freedom from the old enemy of sin and from the belief that has been proven false since our physical infancy and yet is still bound up in our hearts. The belief that the world revolves around me and was recreated for my gratification. You can tell I have some young children. What Peter is saying is that here and now we can be trained to see the world for what it really is. An incredibly dynamic story in which we get to join in the most thrilling drama imaginable as it plays out around the true center of it all, Jesus. Peter offers us a different purpose for, uh, a different purpose to strive for, and one that can actually be fulfilled, since the purpose he is speaking of is God's purpose for us as part of that incredible drama. And we can have confidence that when we are fully engaged in the part God has for us, then we will be most blessed and fulfilled. For when God's creation is engaged in bringing Him glory, then its true purpose is being fulfilled. And this training comes from a source that is unexpected, but is also on full display in Christ's ministry. Do you see it there in verse 1? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that is, through suffering. You can ask, how is that possible? We'll see more on that a little later in the passage. Chapter 4 goes on in verse 3, <clears throat> where we see the place that sin tells us we will find what will truly make us happy. That is, by following the passions of the flesh and pursuing what we want when we want it. But history has shown that down that path is only sadness, sickness, heartbreak, and pain. Yet even in our day and age, humanity has not learned its lesson, and many are fooled by this old temptation. And wherever Peter finds his readers, he says that the time that they have walked on earth thus far is sufficient for them to have learned that this promised fruit of sin is only rottenness and poison. In verse 4, we see that many will not see their sin for the death that it is, 
and will yearn to justify their pursuit of it by scorning those who do not join them in it or affirm their pursuit of it. This should not concern us, though, since the world's temporal judgment is of little account when compared with the eternal judgment of our ultimate creator. Someday the veil will be pulled back and the judge will not overlook the flood of disobedience that the world has engaged in. The true nature of reality will be revealed and those who once argued verbosely for freedom to pursue their sinful desires will be left speechless. In verse five, Peter talks about our ultimate accounting to the creator. And he continues this in verse six, where we'll see that though the ultimate judgment is something that the godless should and do dread, for those who believe in the message of salvation, which the Lord offers, will look on that ultimate judgment without fear, but instead eagerly awaiting the true life that has been promised. So let's look at verse six. The reading of this passage can be uh, a little confusing, but taken in context, we see that Peter is speaking to believers who the truth was preached to and have since died. They live with God in the spirit, even though they have died in the flesh. And by dying in the flesh, they are free from pursuing the lusts of the flesh once and for all. And I think how glorious that will be, something that I eagerly look forward to when we all rejoice around our Savior's throne together and all the garbage that gets in the way here on earth falls off. I can't wait for that. Our next section is our charge and the charge in light of the coming judgment, verses seven through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As it says here in verse seven, we live in the last times. All is set for the Lord to come back. He is at the door, ready to step in. All creation from the moment God brought it into existence has been building to this point. And we are privileged to live in that reality. And in light of this, we should take every opportunity to ensure that we are using our time and resources here on earth well. Does that mean that we should live stoically without enjoying life? No, but it does mean that we should live thoughtfully and in a controlled way. Why? According to the text here, for the sake of your prayers, 
we shouldn't discount or neglect. We shouldn't discount them because in them we are speaking to the one who is waiting at the door, ready to be revealed. And we shouldn't neglect our prayers since he is eager and waiting for our petitions to allow us the privilege to join with him in this plan that he has. And then next in verse 8, we see what I call the charge. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. In what spirit are we to conduct ourselves in these last times? With a spirit of love. Have you ever experienced that when you love something, you have patience for it? The opposite is true, too. When you lack love for something, it's easy to get frustrated with it, to not worry about its well-being, and also to just forget about it completely. This happens with people, too. We will readily forgive someone who we love because of that love. We will wish the best of for them and see the best in them. There's much more to say here, and we could camp out on this verse for a while. Since we don't have time for that, there's one thing I'd like to highlight, and that is that we are called to keep loving one another. Meaning that we start out with a stance of love for one another, or we've learned to love each other, and we are told to earnestly engage in that love still more. That is, wholeheartedly, with conviction, and with a long-term relationship in mind. And we are to have that love above all, or overly, firstly, before other commitments, and informing our thoughts and actions towards one another. We are to start from this position of love. And what's one practical way to exercise that love? By showing hospitality, as we see in the next verse. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So what happens when we show hospitality to another person? We share with them, yes, but it goes deeper than that. We invite them into our home or our lunch table or whatever sphere we happen to be in. And in so doing, we recognize them for what they are, which is a being created in God's image and valuable because of that, just like ourselves. When hospitality is done well, we are eager to shower on our guests the blessings that the Lord has provided with us. And in so doing, we get more blessings by the joy that comes from sharing with each other. But hospitality isn't always easy, is it? There's a reason that the text here needs to add without grumbling. For me, oftentimes, the time that it takes to show hospitality is the barrier. And that usually comes from me thinking of my tasks as more important than the people that are around me. But there will always be tasks to do, won't there? Fences to build. There will always be uh, things that get in the way. And I believe that that's part of what the curse means by toil. 
We'll always have this to repair, that to fill out, this to clean, or that to deal with. And as it says in Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And it goes on from there to say, till you return to the ground. And this highlights two things for me, both that we toil till our time here on earth is done, but also that we will not always have the opportunity to connect with that image bearer that is in front of us. I should mention one thing here in the context of a body, and that's that the charge to exercise hospitality sometimes falls heavier on some families than it does on others. And that could be due to their natural gifting, convictions that they have, or them having a certain position in the body. But let us share both the burden and the blessings of hospitality so that one person or family doesn't get overwhelmed or burnt out. Because when we engage in showing hospitality to the people in our lives as much as we can, then a vibrant, dynamic, and fulfilling community results. Let's move on to verse 10 and the first part of 11. I love the focus of our faith that we see here, the Christian faith, and how much sense it makes. We're called to love our God and Savior and to express that love for Him primarily by passing it on to one another. In verse 8, we are called to, above all, keep loving one another. And here we see that God has not only called us to love, but also given us the tools that we need to love. Our gifts of varied grace complement each other mightily as we share them with one another. Our faith is a faith whose center is an all-powerful, suffering servant. He has all the power, but instead of using that power to subject everyone to his will, he subjected himself and his power in order that he may love and serve us. And it is in Jesus' name that we are called to steward our gifts in the service of one another. But we see here the attitude that we are to use our gifts to serve each other in, and that is carefully, thoughtfully, and considerately, knowing that when we speak words of encouragement to one another, we are being God's voice to each other, and that when we serve and help each other and use our gifts in that way, we are doing so only by God's grace and strength in us. And why do we serve and love each other in this careful and thoughtful way? The rest of verse 11 shows it. We see that the answer points back to where we are called to first and foremost, to love our Lord and Savior. We serve each other to glorify God, and we do so through Christ, since he provided us with the path to be reconciled to God through his ultimate act of powerful service on the cross. And as Peter does here, the privilege to do so should cause us to burst out in praise to him. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which brings us to the end of this section. 
on how to live in light of the coming judgment. The next section is, if you live in this way, here is what to expect. Verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad in his glory when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteousness is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. <clears throat> we'll look first at verse 12. Even though we ended our previous section in celebration of God's glory and the church bringing him glory, we live in a fallen world that is ravaged by the effects of sin. The message of God's grace is foreign to this world, and it will not accept it without a fight, as we see with how the world treated our Savior. And it only makes sense that the way the world treated our leader is also the way that he will treat his followers. But just as God turned the world's rejection of Jesus into its salvation, he also turns the fiery trials we are subjected to due to our faith into a blessing and our good, as we see next in verses 13 through 14. When the world reviles us because we humbly, graciously, and peacefully follow the commandments and adhere to the worldview that God has blessed us with, then we stand with confidence, knowing that we are not looking for the approval of man, but instead we are seeking the approval of God. And logically, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? No accolades, rewards, or words of praise here on earth or any such thing that the world can give us will last much time here and no time when compared to eternity. It's like dividing from inf by infinity, if you know what that does. But even the slightest reward or word of praise from our creator and sustainer of the universe will last for all time here on earth and also beyond time in eternity. Not the greatest reward or riches here on earth compare in the least to what we will gain in the presence of our Lord. So count yourself favored if you are found faithfully following his commands when the world around you is clamoring for you to do otherwise.
On to verse 15. Even though we have great opportunity for receiving the unfading blessings from the Lord, for experiencing hardships in his, names, <clears throat> in his name, some hardships come upon us because of our sin and foolishness. We will receive the consequences of our actions, whether good or bad. And for us today in 2022, I'll highlight one more. That is, being overwhelmed by busyness and distraction. If we allow entertainment media, activities, work, play, sports, social media, news, or whatever the case may be, to push out any room for the life-giving rhythms that our God gives us in Scripture, we should not be surprised when we feel empty, paralyzed, frustrated, and frustrated. This is so hard to fight against in our culture. I know that in my own life. But it is a fight that is worth fighting and one that we should encourage each other to join in the fight against. But we see the flip side in verse 16. When we or one of our brothers and sisters suffer not due to their sin or foolishness, but instead because they are faithfully following our Savior and bearing their cross, then it is no reason for shame, but instead celebration for them and for us. Why? We see that in 17 through 19. Because our God is faithful and has proven himself to be so countless times with his people over the course of history and as attested to in this book. Faithful even when his people are not and for the purpose of his glory. Let us join in that history with him here in the final days of that story. There's, of course, more here in these verses, but we'll move on to our next section, which is a charge to elders. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, to, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the first part of chapter 5, 1 through 3, we see that because of this coming judgment and our being in the last days and the blessings at stake, we have instructions for, to leaders of the church presented from one elder, Peter, to other elders. And though this is directed at elders, we can all learn from it as we look at what demeanor we should see in our elders and also any leader in the church as they think about how they should exercise their duties. That is, with care of a shepherd knowing that it is God's people that are being cared for, also watchfully and alertly, without grumbling or out of obligation, but with an eager heart. Not 
<clears throat> in it for their own good, but instead for the good of the people. And lastly, humbly putting themselves out first as an example. And if we serve the body in this way, we receive the blessings that come from directly from the, our Lord and that last for eternity, as we see in the next verse. Verse 4. No temporary treasure that will fade with time or be at risk of losing. The gifts that the Lord supplies last and are greater than our imaginations can even fathom. The next is a charge to the young and all, chapters 5, 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Our culture idolizes youth, and in doing so, it undermines the great benefit that it would have by valuing the wisdom of those who have learned to walk before. Here we see a call to fight that narrative. Instead, subject or place yourself under the elders. And I gladly do this, and I am grateful that my elders exercise their duties, as called out in verses 5, 1 through 3. Let us pray for our elders and leaders to continue to perform in such a way. <clears throat> and all of us are to wear humility, as it says in this verse, on ourselves close enough and covering us completely that it here calls it clothing ourselves in humility. If older, knowing that you once were young. If younger, knowing that others have walked your path before and you can learn from them. To peers, knowing that you can stand on equal ground before, that knowing that you all stand on equal ground before our Savior who is in heaven. And all of us, having fallen short of the glory of God, and apart from his inexpressibly and awesome work on the cross, we, his once enemies, would be destined to damnation. And finally, we are to remember that the Lord gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So what should we do? We should trust our God and humble ourselves before him. He has shown himself to be trustworthy and knows all about our problems and the challenges that we face in a deeper way than we can even imagine. And he is eager to exalt us and glorify himself through us by doing so. And in light of that, in light of our God being all-powerful, all-loving, 
we are called to cast all your anxieties on him with a parting assurance because he cares for you. Cares for you in a way that is incredible, unimaginable, and beautiful. 1 Peter was written as an encouragement to Christians who face difficulties and persecutions common to those of the faith in a hostile world. And it calls us to persevere and to consider what the Lord has done for us. It also calls us to remember the promises that we have in Him, what He calls us to, and how to live out that calling here on earth. Chapter 4 contrasted the faithful and their calling with the lawless and their debauchery. It highlighted the coming judgment for the latter and how to practice the calling of the former, which is to the glory and in the strength of the Lord. It culminated with a reminder of the reason for the Christian's earthly trials, which is proving one's faith, and of the treasure we get by joining in Christ's suffering through these trials. And I look forward to joining with all of you as we continue to walk in and build on the legacy that First Peter introduces us to, a legacy that we share with all people who follow Christ, and is one that we continually testify to the world as we live the humble and holy lives that we are called to in this book. Thank you for bearing with my voice through this. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you and praise you for the time that we have had together this morning. I pray that the truth of 1 Peter will sink deep into our hearts and minds and prepare us and encourage us in perseverance as we face the suffering inherent in the Christian walk. You, Lord, have provided us with a family, a calling, equipping, promises that give us all we need to face the challenges before us, not just with perseverance, but with joy, knowing that we are destined to share in your glory one day. May that day come soon, Lord, and may we stand firm until it does. Amen.